1: This year marks 500 years since Pope Leo X granted Henry VIII the title of Fidae Defensor, or Defender of the Faith. Oh, the irony. It's been one of the subsidiary titles of the English and later British crown ever since. To mark the occasion and to celebrate the largely unsung treasures of their collection... The Society of Antiquaries in London has put together a fabulous online exhibition exploring Henry as defender of the faith through rare manuscripts, objects and portraits. Just look up the Society of Antiquaries of London to find it and scroll through as you listen along or go and have a look later. It seems to work especially well on Google Chrome. Joining me to talk about the exhibition is one of its creators, Dr John Cooper, John is a reader in early modern history at the University of York. His books include The Queen's Agent, Francis Walsingham at the Court of Elizabeth I, and he is director of the Society of Antiquaries. His recent work has focused on St Stephen's Chapel in the Palace of Westminster, exploring, with the aid of a grant from the Arts and Humanities Research Council, how the medieval chapel royal was converted in 1547 to become the first permanent meeting place of the House of Commons. And he's also working with historic royal palaces, again funded by the HRC, on a project about Henry VIII's progresses. So there was loads of things I could have talked to him about. But what I asked him to do was to be our exclusive tour guide for this wonderful online exhibition. John, thank you so much for joining me and talking about this exhibition, which excitingly being online can be seen all over the world. And perhaps we ought to start, first of all, by introducing people to the Society of Antiquaries, which they may not have heard of.
0: Well, it's great to be talking to you. Thanks very much for this invitation. And yes, the Society of Antiquaries, I mean, we have been around since 1707, but you're right, lots of people won't have heard of us. We're a scholarly society and also an educational charity, and we're based in Burlington House, just off Piccadilly, but we have fellows all over the world. And what we do essentially is study the material remains of the past. That's our particular remit. Now, material remains can mean archaeology, and we have lots of archaeologists who are fellows, but it also means all sorts of other things. It means objects, and it means books, and manuscripts, and portraits. And the Society of Antiquaries happens to have a particularly splendid Tudor collection. And it was a result of thinking about those Tudor collections and wanting to make them better known that a group of us at the Antiquaries thought you're going to good idea to hold this exhibition and of course what we wanted was a face-to-face exhibition actually to showcase real objects to real people the pandemic intervened and so we had to change over to an online exhibition but as you say That has meant that we've been able to kind of broadcast all over the world rather than just to people who can visit Piccadilly.
1: And what's the vision for the exhibition beyond showing off these wonderful treasures?
0: Well, that was a pretty good starting point as a vision for the exhibition. We really do want to make these collections better known. There is a spectacular collection of Tudor objects in the Antiquaries. we want to showcase but originally we were looking at anniversaries and thinking about 1520 to 2020 being 500 years of the great summit meeting between francis i and henry viii at the fields of cloth of gold now of course there were lots of planned henry viii activities in 2020 almost all of which got squashed by the pandemic so then we thought and actually for us this gave us a real opportunity because we spotted, or rather my colleague, Professor Maurice Howard, spotted, that of course 1521, 2021 was the 500th anniversary of the creation of Henry VIII as Defender of the Faith, Fidei Defensor. And that actually is a rather more interesting, I mean, a less well-known, even a unique story that we felt that we could tell through the collections of the antiquaries. So it was a sort of blessing for us in disguise.
1: Now, the exhibition is divided into themes four themes and we'll look at maybe a few images or objects from each of them and the first is chivalry and pageantry and the item that caught my eye now I know you're going to say this is a facsimile but it still caught my eye. Is this Westminster tournament roll a copy made in the 19th century but of a 1511 roll and what's rather wonderful about this is that you can scroll through and see every detail can you describe it for us?
0: Yes, you're right, this is an early 19th century antiquarian copy, but it's one of the things that antiquarians did at this point, is make just exceptionally beautiful artistic copies of very rare manuscripts. And the original manuscript of this, the Westminster Tournament Roll, is held in the College of Arms. But essentially what this is, is a long series of pieces of paper stitched together to produce an extremely long roll, like the original vellum roll, and it describes visually the great tournaments and pageants that were held in 1511 to celebrate the birth of a son to Catherine of Aragon and Henry VIII. Now, a lot of people may actually have forgotten or never known that Henry VIII did have a son with Catherine of Aragon at that point, the young Prince Henry, Duke of Cornwall. The prince doesn't live very long, tragically, he dies, but his birth is a cause of enormous rejoicing, In England that the succession, as they think, is secure. And so what we see is this sort of vividly coloured pageant of a procession of, first of all, heralds and trumpeters and marshals, and then a series of knights in armour, champions, one of whom, of course, is Henry VIII himself and then knights on horseback, and then the rather spectacular tent from which Queen Catherine and her ladies are judging the tournament. And this is a record, albeit a slightly fictionalised record, of a very real series of jousts and tournaments in which Henry VIII did compete in 1511. We must remember the young Henry VIII was a very tall, strong and powerful man, an extremely brave jouster, probably the second best jouster in the kingdom. And so this records these tournaments to celebrate the birth of a prince.
1: Recently, we've noted that amongst the trumpeters of the king, we have here a man of colour, John Blank, who's recorded as being paid, and we have a picture of him. And I also particularly like, if you scroll through, you just get a sense of the magnificence of the court. And we get to this beautiful H and K under a crowned Tudor rose, which is sprouting leaves, which I suppose is also an indication of the fact that they have had a son, and it's supposed to suggest that. What details jump out at you?
0: Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, so much of this rose iconography that the Tudors adopt is pointing towards fertility of the dynasty. And so the leaves and shoots that we see sprouting from this union of Henry and Catherine is precisely what's being celebrated, that this is a successful marriage, that Henry and Catherine have had a child, not only have they had a child, they've had a son, and that the lines of Lancaster and York have been brought together and now England and Spain have been allied and produced fruit. Something else that one would notice about this from a heraldic point of view is the kind of crown that surmounts this united red and white rose. It's a closed crown, which in heraldic terms means an imperial crown. And this is really interesting because traditionally English kings were kings but not emperors. This is the sort of title that Henry VIII is moving towards. Henry VIII wants to think of himself as an emperor in his own realm and that's the sort of rhetoric that comes out of the Reformation we know but it's a very interesting early example of this closed imperial crown and it shows this very high view of his kingship that Henry VIII has right from the start. There's one other interesting detail. As you said, it's an H and a K, isn't it? It's not a C. So I think this sorts out how we should spell Catherine of Aragon's name. You sometimes see her spelled with a C, sometimes with a K. It's a K. And Henry VIII actually rides into jousting battle with a K woven into the comparison of his horse. That's how her name was spelled at the time.
1: I think it gets spelt with a C because she was Catalina in Spanish before she came over, but that the English rendering of it is very much with a K. But the other thing also is fascinating is that the, I said it was a Tudor rose, but of course, actually, you've got the red and the white separated here. Half of it is the white rose of York and half of it is the red rose of Lancaster. I think it's quite unusual.
0: It is unusual. There's more variation, actually, on that Tudor rose theme than you might think. And once you start really looking at Tudor royal iconography of the earlier part of the Tudor period, you can see that, actually. I mean, I think it's sometimes assumed that Henry VII unites the white rose and the red by marrying Elizabeth of York. And then, bingo, you've got a united Tudor rose. Actually, that's depicted in a variety of forms. And we have to remember that Henry VII was the heir of the House of Lancaster more evidently than the heir of the House of York. And he sometimes does carry on using the Red Rose of Lancaster, actually. So yes, certainly this is playing on that uniting of the two warring houses that had been fighting the previous generation, the Wars of the Roses. And now, of course, one generation on, we have this young prince who's going to be coming to a peaceful succession, as is assumed, when his father dies. But of course, this young Prince Henry is not destined to live very long, thus catapulting England into 20 years of torment, really, around the problem of the succession and the marriage to Catherine.
1: It is absolutely devastating for them that this child dies after seven weeks. Let's scroll down a little bit because, as we both said, that was a facsimile, but you do have some wonderful originals down here, including this vellum jousting cheque from the field of cloth of gold. What's the role of chivalry and jousting at the Tudor court? And what does this cheque tell us?
0: Yeah, it's a very good question. I mean, chivalry is really derived from the battlefield. I mean, it's a concept that has governed European relations, particularly Northern European relations, since the 14th century. It's a kind of code of knightly conduct, a way of conducting war on the battlefield. I mean, a very elite code. I think chivalry applies much more to mounted knights than it does to followers. But something rather interesting has happened by the early 16th century. Heavy cavalry charges are really less of a feature of the early 16th century battlefield. Once you start getting ordnance guns, that's the way that battles are increasingly fought. And so chivalry really pivots in a different direction. And it becomes much more about a word that you used a few moments ago, which is magnificence, Mm -hmm. a way of projecting the magnificence and the splendor of the monarchy. And it's also a language of communication chivalry. And that's certainly what we see here in this jousting check for the fields of cloth of gold, where France and England, both their kings and their senior nobility and gentry are cordially detesting each other and fighting a series of jousts and tournaments in the muddy fields outside Calais, which is still an English town at this point. But chivalry is also very much connected with masculinity, I think, and This is something that now that historians are thinking more about gender, we're rather more aware of. Really, chivalry does also have a lot to do with male showmanship and competing for the love of beautiful women, you know, competing on the battlefield and on the jousting field for female approval. And so this is also what we see going on at the field of Cloth of Gold jousting actually has a rather complicated scoring system and this is a rather amazing survival that actually enables you to work out how well the English and how well the French knights were doing but if you look at this it's far from a blank or bleak record because it's absolutely festooned with royal iconography with the royal arms of France and England and then the individual arms of the combatants to create a permanent record of these battles between the nobles and the gentry.
1: It's a really wonderful thing to be able to see. Now, the link, I suppose, between pageantry and magnificence and defending the faith is that this is an idea that Henry thinks of as something that does elevate his status. And if we move on into the next section of the exhibition, defending the faith, we immediately come across the idea that Henry wrote a defence of the traditional seven sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church in 1521, dedicated it to the Pope and was rewarded with this title of fidei Defensor or Defender of the Faith as a result. But the first image here is something that looks at first glance to be completely remote to that. It's a fragment of a painted panel associated with Saxon kings. Explain the link, please.
0: Well I was particularly keen to include this image. So what we see here is a painted panel of King Athelstan. Athelstan was a ruler of 10th century England. He was a ruler of a nation at a time when England itself was barely in existence, shall we say, so the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms were only just now forming themselves into one nation. But we know that this is an image of Tudor kingship because of analysis of the wood on which this panel is painted. So that's one of the wonders of modern technology. We now know that this panel painting dates from either the very end of the 15th century or the first couple of decades of the 16th century. And we also know it's English. So that means that it's an English image of kingship. But we can also speculate a little bit further than that. And this is where you really do have to bring a bit of speculation or a bit of imagination in to understand an image like this. This is clearly a very high status royal image, and it did not originate from the slightly run down farmhouse in which it was found. So what's going on here? Well, that run down farmhouse was only a few miles from one of the great early Tudor royal palaces that's half forgotten now, but which is Eltham Palace. So we think of Whitehall, we think of Hampton Court, we think of St James's. In fact, Eltham was a very important early Tudor palace, and Henry VIII spent Christmas there in 1515. Now we also know that his father, Henry VII, had had another one of the royal palaces decorated with a series of pageants of panel paintings of great pious and warrior-like English kings. And so there is a real possibility, I think, that this image of King Athelstan was one of those panel paintings created for Henry VIII to celebrate Christmas at Elton Palace in 1515. We can't absolutely prove that, but there is circumstantial evidence that points in that direction. And the reason that that's significant is that Henry is obviously thinking about his kingship historically, And I don't think we think about Henry VIII in those terms enough. We think about Henry VIII as a kind of a new monarch because of what he does in terms of breaking away from the Catholic Church and as some of my undergraduates at the University of York have it, creating the Protestant Church of England. I think mm-hmm. almost everything about that is to be questioned, really. An image like this one just shows that Henry VIII is thinking of his kingship, at least in the first half of his reign, in historical terms. He's thinking about continuity with the past, and even the really deep past. So I think this is a unique image to the Society of Antiquaries, and it really puts Henry VIII in a new light, and that's what we were hoping to do elsewhere in the exhibition as well.
1: And I think it's fascinating because one of the things that we do know is done in Henry's name is generating a narrative about England being, in the language of the time, an empire, as you've talked about, the imperial crown, so a land not ruled by other lands or other powers. And to do that, they hark back to all sorts of ideas about the medieval past. But this suggests that possibly the young Henry VIII or possibly his father was already looking back to their antecedents and was already trying to establish a sense of their role as Tudor kings in the great run. They wouldn't have called themselves Tudor kings, as we know, but their role as kings in the great run of monarchs since the time of someone like Ethelstan. And I think that's fascinating that it's already a preoccupation.
0: If I think back to studying my A-levels and doing an A-level in Tudor history, I memorised that bit of Cromwell's statute, the Act in Restraint of Appeals, this realm of England is an empire and so has been accepted in the world. Probably you did too. And that gives a sense that this idea of Henry VIII as emperor is new as a result of the Reformation the break from Rome. Absolutely it isn't. Henry VII, Henry VIII's father, has been playing around with this sort of language of sovereignty for a long time. We see it in texts and we see it in some of his iconography as well. We also see it in the naming of his ships, actually. If you look at the ships of the early Tudor navy, they have names like the Sovereign. So there is that language of majesty and magnificence that possibly is even being inherited from a slightly pre-Tudor period to the late Yorkist kings, Edward IV. But remember that Edward IV is Henry VIII's grandfather, and Edward IV and Henry VIII actually look quite similar to each other. They're both really, really tall men, something like six foot one in height. So there are all sorts of interesting things going on here in terms of thinking about the continuity of Henry VIII's reign with the later medieval past. And this is something at some point I'd like to do some work on. I haven't yet written that article, but I do think that setting Henry VIII in this sort of historical context is an important part of our kind of reassessment of him. And to be honest, that's what curating an exhibition like this enables you to do. It's not simply just a case of looking at this material and projecting it to the public. This is the way that people like you and me do research, isn't it? We actually are given a task like this, and then we start looking into these images and setting them up against each other. And then out of that, discoveries start to come. And the Saxon panels, the Athelstan image is an example of that. I didn't really know enough about that until I started to do some research for this exhibition and started researching the Society of Antiquaries' amazing picture catalogue and thought hold on there's something really interesting going on here and this could be one of the very images that Henry VIII looked at before he processed to mass in Elton Palace. Now that says something very interesting about the kind of nexus of connections between power and religion in the early Tudor period. Okay, Tristan, you've got 50 seconds. Go. Right, so Dan's given me a few seconds to sell The Ancients podcast. What is The Ancients, I hear you say. Well, it's like Dan's show, except just ancient history. We've got the groundbreaking new archaeological discoveries. This seems to be the oldest known dated depiction of the animal world, as far as we can tell, anywhere in the world. We've got the big names.
1: It's one of those great things, Pompeii. It's kind of forever rising from the dead and from destruction.
0: We've got the big topics. The man destroys seven legions in a day. No one in history has done that. Subscribe to The Ancients from History Hit wherever you get your podcasts from. Oh, and Russell Crowe, if you're listening, we would love to have you on The Ancients. Spread the word, people. Spread the word.
1: Let's move on to look at Henry's break with Rome because there's lots of treasures here. I mean, the society has got an enormous number of things. Maybe you could give us a sense of some of the treasures here before we focus on a few of them.
0: The first image that we really want to think about is one of our portraits of Henry VIII, which is rather charmingly known as Henry VIII with the pale green background, because if you look at it, that's what it is. Now, probably the first thing that would strike you about this image is that it's just not as good as a Holbein. It's Mm. not as good as a Hus Van Cleve. So if you were an art historian or you were a dealer, In 16th century art, you'd be thinking of this as a second or third rank painting of the king. It depicts him really sort of filling the frame, already sort of becoming rather jowly. I think it's an image of the king, possibly from the very late 1520s, more likely the 1530s. So it's a break from Rome era image of Henry, where clearly he's becoming a more massive presence in every possible definition of that phrase. Artistically, it's a very interesting record of Henry VIII's dress. He's dressed splendidly. He's got this rather magnificent silken undergarment and then a kind of a deliberately slashed jerkin to show that silk pouring through with a fur sort of cloak or tippet around him and this rather splendid hat with an extravagant feather. There are other interesting aspects of this picture including if you look at it very very closely art historians who've looked at this describe a kind of calligraphic quality to the fur and to actually Henry's beard you can see and I suspect the fact he's wearing a hat is significant I suspect that as happens to men in middle age I think that his full head of hair might be beginning to look a little bit less full than it did and so that's the point at which he starts to wear a hat and he's pretty well always depicted wearing a hat from now on. But why this image excites me as a historian, as distinct from an art historian, is actually the fact that it's artistically a kind of a second rank image. It proves that costly, but not ultra elite images were being painted of Henry VIII for purchase and for consumption. There's no way, I think, that this was a portrait that was hanging in one of the royal palaces. But there's every chance it would have been hanging in the house of one of Henry VIII's senior courtiers. So this, for me as a historian who works on royal iconography, proves that the Tudor royal image was being disseminated, that it was spreading out as a culture of loyalty into private houses, albeit domestic private houses. So, as I say, it's not a Holbein, but it is absolutely fascinating for the historical insight that one can derive from it.
1: And I think its relationship with the Holbein images that we know is very interesting as well because there is, of course, a Holbein image of Henry VIII where he has a similar pose to this one as in his shoulders sort of stretch outside the frame. His head is turned so he's not looking out at the spectator and maybe Holbein's original image of Henry if it isn't I think it is his original one of 1536-37 that's in the Thyssen in Spain is actually based on trying to recreate this kind of iconography but Also, what this crucially tells us is how important it is that Holbein changed his mind about how he was going to do that and then depicted Henry full length and looking out at the spectator and giving an idea around Henry's leadership, which I don't think we would have such a fascination with Henry if this was the only picture we had of him, as opposed to those full length pictures of Henry by Holbein, which so much create a sense of the man. But this is obviously a step towards that. Do you agree?
0: We know the Holbein image very well. Essentially, it goes on to Bibles and it goes into popular print circulation. And that same Holbein image in the late 1530s and 1540s is reproduced all over the plea rolls and King's Bench indictments and all sorts of other legal records. It becomes a very distinct brand. And it's the way that Henry VIII is depicted from then on in the same way that the Hilliard image becomes a type for Elizabeth I. But what an image like this one tells us is that Holbein wasn't unique, actually, in the way that he was depicting Henry. There were other examples of this. This is an anonymous artist. We simply don't know who painted this. But Hus van Cleve is doing something not terribly dissimilar, creating this new sort of image of the king. And people have thought this is a newly assertive image, connected it to the break from Rome, connected to the Reformation. There may be other. Aspects of this. It may be a particular image of power that Henry wants to represent in terms of the kind of post Wolsey years, because it's pretty widely known that in the first half of his reign, Henry VIII does really depend on Cardinal Wolsey a great deal for a lot of the day to day running of government and possibly even some political decisions as well. Cromwell's relationship with Henry is very different from. Wolseys, and by the 1540s, Henry is ruling alone, at least in theory. So maybe that kind of rulership requires a different sort of image, just as the break from Rome does. It could also come down to shifts in artistic style, actually. So there are all sorts of things feeding into these images. But what an image like this one does, it really brings you up short because you think you know what Henry VIII looks like. But of course we know what Holbein's Henry VIII looks like. We're actually much less familiar with how other artists depicted Henry. It's an interesting reminder that we can't take too much for granted and there are other possible Henry VIII's that we need to investigate. And that's precisely what we've been trying to portray in this exhibition.
1: That's really interesting. Okay, let's go on from this and look a little bit further down the page. We have, amazingly, in the Society's collection, this printed proclamation for abolishing of the power of the Pope, issued by Henry in June 1535. Tell me about this. I'm also particularly interested in how it shows, thinking about the theme of the exhibition, Henry's degree of attachment to that title of Defender of the Faith.
0: Yes, I have to say, I mean, it's kind of a nerdy thing to say, but I was so excited to look at some of these proclamations in the original. Because of the pandemic, access to the collections in Burlington House has been very restricted, but I was able to get into our museum room, and Kate Bagnall was able to get out some of these, including this proclamation, and it really is one of the spectacular things you can do as a fellow of the Society of Antiquaries is examine these objects in the original, and we have an awful lot of royal proclamations. It was the first time actually I'd come face to face, as it were, with a royal proclamation. I'd read lots of them, but always in modern scholarly printed editions. And once you start looking at the originals, you notice things. And the obvious thing you notice about this proclamation when you look at it, is it comes with a thumping great representation of the royal arms up in the top left-hand corner. It is a simplified version of the royal arms. So this is clearly intended to be a popular image of royal power. And then the text is printed. This is not a manuscript. It's early print. And it's comparatively easy to read. And it also comes with a kind of an acclamation or almost a shout at the end in huge typeface, God save the king. And so we can tell immediately from that that whoever read out this proclamation for the abolishing of the power of the Pope, and we know that these proclamations were read out in pubs and in churches and in market crosses for people to hear in the 1530s. We know that whoever read that out would have ended with a God save the king. And there would have been an absolute expectation that everybody would have shouted God save the king and thrown their caps in the air if they had a cap. And there's also a more unpleasant side to that. It's widely rumoured that wherever people assembled in the 1530s, that Cromwell had agents in the crowd. And those agents were watching for dissenters. They were watching for people who sneered or didn't throw their caps in the air or didn't enthusiastically shout out, God save the king. Now, we tend to associate the origins of an English secret service with the Elizabethan period, with Francis Walsingham. In fact, I wrote a book on that very subject. But actually, it's a reminder that these sorts of agents were in operation, I think, in crowds in the 1530s to police dissent. There were a lot of people who weren't happy with the abolishing of the power of the Pope. There were a lot of people who weren't happy with the dissolution of the monasteries. And so this document, really, it's an act of enforcement of that. And it would have been met with a whole variety of responses, I think, from excitement and patriotism through to grudging acceptance and and out-and-out fear. And so looking at the original document like this, one can almost recover that set of the varied responses of Tudor crowds to the Reformation.
1: Another printed work that we must talk about because... This is an exhibition by the Society of Antiquaries. Is John Leland's itinerary because Leland was the first to call himself an antiquary. Let's have a quick look at this.
0: Yes, that's right. John Leland is an almost forgotten figure now outside of scholarly circles, which is rather sad actually because he was an absolutely remarkable person. I mean, what we are showing in our exhibition is an 18th century edition of the itinerary of John Leland the Antiquary in nine volumes which is a record of Leland's utterly extraordinary journeys around England between 1539 and 1545. I mean he must have been the best traveled Englishman of the mid-16th century. Now what he's doing is also very interesting. Leland is a poet and a royal chaplain in fact with connections with the court but he's also holding some sort of a commission from the king to visit particularly monasteries. He's not one of the surveyors sizing up monastic revenues or lands for dissolution so far as we know. He seems to be particularly interested in the monastic library and he's saving volumes for what becomes the king's library, which you can still see in that magnificent display in the center of the British library. And that's one of the reasons that he is described as an antiquary, because he's collecting these material remains of the past that are about to be swept away by the dissolution of monasteries. But why is he doing that? That's the big question. Is he doing it just for scholarly reasons? And I suspect not. I suspect that there's some set of connections that as yet we don't completely understand between what Leland is attempting to do in collecting all of these records of the medieval past, all of these medieval books, and the model of monarchy that Henry VIII is promulgating. So it's extremely important for Henry VIII to deny basically what some of my undergraduates attribute to him, that he was a new monarch creating the new Church of England. That's the last thing that Henry VIII wants to be thought of as doing. He wants to be thought of, as we said earlier, in this long run of continuity with the past, that his monarchy is every bit as legitimate as previous kings. And in a sense, even more legitimate because he's finally abolished the usurped powers of the Pope. And he's reclaimed that ancient power that English monarchs always had. It's just they've kind of forgotten about it for a thousand years. And I suspect that One of the things that Leland is doing is collecting the proof of that, or proof in inverted commas, he's collecting books that can then be used as kind of research tools, if necessary, to kind of prove, or at least construct, that historical narrative of the legitimacy of ancient imperial English kingship. Now again, that's not something I've really done work on, and I haven't quite seen that argument very clearly displayed in any of the writings on Leland. As it happens, one of the members of staff at the Society of Antiquaries, Linda Grant, who's our governance officer, she's an expert in 16th century literature. She's interested in Leland as a classical scholar. She's interested in Leland's work on the Latin poet Catullus. But this is a very different kind of Leland. This is not Leland the classical scholar or the Latin poet. This is Leland, the kind of political commissioner doing definite work for the Tudor crown. But there's so much that we don't know about Leland because something about his character or something of his exhaustive work for the Tudor crown actually pushes him over the edge and less sensitive accounts say he ends up a madman. I think we would say now that he suffers some kind of a mental breakdown or suffers a very serious set of mental health issues. And all of the books that he hopes to write don't emerge. He was hoping to write a kind of history of English literature from the Druids onwards. That does not happen. And he leaves this kind of chaotic mass of notes that John Bale works through and historians have to some extent worked through. But I suspect there's all sorts of fascinating stuff there in Leland's papers still to be worked through. I think he's a really important figure. Again, as I say, half forgotten, but he's particularly important for us at the Antiquaries because he's the first person really in English consistently to describe himself as antiquarius and antiquary.
1: There are all sorts of other wonderful treasures here, but I particularly want to move now to look at the great seal of Henry VIII, this wax impression of his great seal. Tell us about this.
0: Yes, the Society of Antiquaries has a remarkable collection of seals. A lot of them are actually impressions of seals created from other impressions, so that they're, as it were, facsimiles or copies. This one is particularly exciting for us it's an original wax impression of the third seal of Henry VIII. And it also displays the new iconography of the king that we were just discussing. So, the Great Seal is a very ancient instrument of English government. It's the highest form of authorization in English law. And seals, you can see, adopting a very similar format really from the High Middle Ages onwards, of an obverse with the king enthroned in majesty, and a reverse with the king on horseback. And indeed, this is exactly what you see here. But this is not just a traditional, as it were, image of medieval kingship. Although Henry is enthroned and Henry is on horseback, it's a far more obviously 16th century image. It's a far more Renaissance image in its artistic style, I think really a far more dramatic image of Henry VIII's power. So we really see the influence of that sort of Holbein or Holbein-esque image of Henry VIII's royal power. These original seals would have been used to authenticate a whole series of documents, from the surrender and regrant of monastic lands through to statutes. Through to some of the proclamations actually that we have in the Society of Antiquaries collections. This is also particularly exciting because it's variously described as a cord or a tag or a tongue, essentially, this piece of intertwined fabric around which the seal is made that sort of suspends it from the original document. It still has that in place. And one of the things that fascinates me about this is its colour, this kind of barley twist, green and white colour. Now we know. From Henry VII's reign, that those green and white colours, those are the Tudor colours. Actually, we see it in all sorts of other Tudor royal iconography. And again, this is something I hadn't really appreciated, that that green and white Tudor brand that we see in some paintings had actually spread to the royal seal. Even if the Tudors didn't call themselves the Tudors, it's a very personally, in inverted comma, Tudor dynastic colourway attached to that seal. And it really is in wonderful condition. We, of course, have included it because it's got it there in writing, the fide defence or the defender of the faith. So it proves that this great title that Henry VIII wins from the Pope in 1521, even after Henry VIII is excommunicated by the Pope as a result of abolishing the Pope's authority, Henry VIII clings onto that title. And indeed, by an Act of Parliament of 1543, that title is granted in perpetuity to all English monarchs. And let's play the game. If you're listening to this podcast in the UK and you happen to have a coin in your pocket, take out that coin and look at the Queen's head side of the coin and you'll still see that FD for Fidei Defensor, Defender of the Faith. That title of 1521 is still there on every English coin.
1: It is wonderful as an object to look at this, and I am similarly nerdily excited about the green and white cord. In Tudor times they would be called livery colours, but I suppose it's the equivalent of a football strip, isn't it? This is what the Tudor strip is. If you want to align yourself with the Tudors, that you have things decorated like this. This is the colours that they go out in, that their servants will be wearing. When we hear about someone's turning up and he's wearing the king's livery, this is what he would have looked like.
0: That is absolutely right. And I suppose if you don't know this, you'd think, well, what's the royal colours? You'd think, well, the royal colours are kind of red and gold, possibly that kind of azure blue that you would see like St Stephen's Chapel or the surviving chapel ceiling at Hampton Court the Chapel Royal in that blue. But actually, if you were to see the king's servants, if you were to see members of the royal household, they would have been distinguished with those green and white colours. And it's those green and white colours that would have distinguished the king as he went jousting and tourneying. So it's a very personal colourway out of identifying the king himself and identifying his family.
1: So if you're listening to this and ever travel back in time, now you know how to identify Henry VIII and not make a sort of Anne of Cleves size mistake. Our final theme is personality and legacy. And here you've just got some remarkable manuscripts. There are far too many for us to talk about, but tell me about the ones you find most important here.
0: Whereas some of the other things I've talked about have been copies or facsimiles or, or antiquarian versions of originals, some case lost originals, these two manuscripts are absolutely pucker. These are the original real deal. And one of them is the inventory of Henry VIII. We have half of it. British Library has the other half, but This is the original inventory that was drawn up when Henry VIII died in 1547. It's a huge document and it lists the complete contents of the king's palaces. Everything from books and the furniture and the portraits to the incidental items, the personal items owned by the king and some of the fascinating incidental items. So going through this, inventory. You, for instance, find references to the braided damask masking costumes of the women of Henry VIII's court. You know, A very valuable reminder that women are not, as it were, just wives. They're absolutely players in the very sexualized culture of politics at Henry VIII's court. And sure enough, those costumes are inventoried in Henry VIII's inventory. The thing that really excited and surprised me as somebody who works on royal chapels is the contents of the chapel. And you discover that Henry VIII's chapel still has all sorts of things that you wouldn't really expect, as it were, a Protestant monarch to have, including a collection of monstrances. Now, if you don't have the benefit of a Catholic education, then a monstrance is a sort of cross with a hinged compartment in which the host, the body of Christ, the blessed sacraments can be placed. And it's used for a service of benediction, for veneration. It's a very traditional Catholic looking item to have survived in the royal collections. Now, we don't absolutely know how those monstrouses were used, but the fact that they survive, the fact that they haven't been purged or melted down for the very considerable weight of silver suggests that there is something interesting going on. And I think in an item like that, we do see more of a Catholic than a Protestant Henry VIII by the end of his reign. But the second manuscript is beyond the reign of Henry VIII, and that's Mary's book of fees and offices. Edward VI, little Edward, dies before he reaches his 16th birthday. So for the second half of the 16th century, we move to this extraordinary period of rule by women. And this is a valuable reminder that Elizabeth I was not the first female ruler of England. It was the Catholic Mary I, slandered as Bloody Mary. And this is a spectacular manuscript because of its title page, this book of fees and offices, which is gloriously illuminated in the manner almost of a medieval devotional manuscript. This is not a devotional book. It's a purely administrative document. But The title page has interleaved Tudor roses and pomegranates, and the pomegranates are particularly interesting because that was the personal symbol of Catherine of Aragon. And I think that this shows Mary I adopting the same royal iconography as her long-dead and disgraced mother. That's interesting in itself. But what you see in this book, again, it's a complete list of all of the officers who serve the crown And it's drawn up in August 1553, immediately on Mary, not just acceding to the throne, but remember winning the throne. She's defeated Lady Jane Grey, who's briefly ruled as Jane I, to win the throne. And then there's this great survey conducted essentially of the officers who serve the Queen, both at court, but particularly beyond the court. And I think something actually rather disturbing underpins this document. I think that what Mary may be seeking to do in producing this complete list of names of all who serve her is to begin a religious purge and actually to get rid of those Protestant officers who may serve her only half-heartedly or possibly to plot against her. So this apparently perfectly straightforward albeit rather magnificent administrative document may actually have a political purpose behind it. Again, just two things. If we were to be able to examine the original of this manuscript, what I would be turning to, first of all, is the list of the gentlemen of the Chapel Royal, where if you run your finger down the page, you will come across the name of one Thomas Tallis, one of the greatest, if not the greatest, mid to late 16th century composer of, of sacred music. And then I would turn to a page which lists Queen Mary I's hunting establishment, the children of the leash, and all of her hunting dogs. Mary the I went hunting. Who knew? We just don't know enough about monarchs hunting. And again, one of my former doctoral students, Dustin Neighbours, is doing a great deal of work on royals, and particularly royal women, hunting. So that's another emerging research agenda that a document like this really illustrates.
1: Just beautiful, and so fascinating I can't really believe that I'm looking at it. (laughs) So I urge everybody to go and have a look at this gorgeous illuminated manuscript. Now, if people want to go and look at this or any of the other things we've talked about, or indeed all the things we haven't had a chance to talk about, John, where do they need to go to find it?
0: Well, if you just search for the Society of Antiquaries of London, our website is www.sal.org.uk. And then on our front page, just scroll down and you'll see my name and you'll see a big image of Henry VIII with the pale green background. And there's a link there to click on and that takes you straight into our online exhibition. This is really a bit of an experiment for us. I mean, we have held face to face in person exhibitions in the past, but Burlington House, was somewhat limited in the number of people. We can actually get into the place at any one time. And of course, access to Burlington House has been severely restricted over the past 18 months. So this is really an opportunity for us to broadcast some of our fantastic collections to a far greater audience. And whereas in the past, our lectures have got a capacity of 80 or 90 people, we're now regularly broadcasting to several hundred people across the world in our online lectures, and public lectures and those are free to participate in so I would urge you as well as looking at the exhibition see what else we have to offer um, the society also and it's a research organization it also offers scholarly grants to students and to senior academics for research and for travel also for conservation purposes actually so we're a very active educational and conservation charity it's a major part of our work which doesn't really get broadcast very much, but a great deal goes on behind the scenes to manage a series of trusts that often provide really significant sums of money for those kind of scholarly and conservation purposes. So it's really a great organisation to be part of.
1: Yes, and members of this parish may be interested in Professor Susan Doran's upcoming online lecture on queenship in early modern England, which is on the 14th of September at the Society of antiquaries online of course. So this is a wonderful exhibition do go and have a look it's been amazing to have this expert guided tour from you John thank you so much for that this is exactly the sort of stuff that excites us whether it is green and white chords or gorgeous illuminated manuscripts thank you for your time.
0: It's been an absolute pleasure thank you for having me on.
1: If you enjoyed this episode, please recommend this podcast to your friends and family and do share it on social media. And also, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave a rating or a comment. Thank you. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age